You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Turla is back and with a clever backdoor called Light Neuron. Verizon's data breach investigations report shows that the C-suite remains a big target of social engineers, that crooks are following companies into the cloud, that ransomware remains popular, and that people seem warier of phishing. Bad actors peddle influence in the EU, Binance gets looted, Baltimore gets hacked. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, May 8th, 2019. Microsoft Exchange has received a good bit of hacking attention recently, and ESET has a partial explanation. Turla, also known as Snake or Uroburo, a Trojan long used by Russian intelligence services, is back and using what ZDNet calls one hell of a clever backdoor. The backdoor is called Light Neuron, and it functions as a mail transfer service, which is thought to be a first. It's been active since 2014, and it's hit targets in Brazil, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East. It's an espionage tool, not a conventionally criminal one, and the organizations it's known to have affected include diplomatic organizations. Kaspersky discussed the tool briefly in early 2018, but Light Neuron's unusual mode of operation and powerful functionality have only recently been understood. Light Neuron is directly integrated into the Microsoft Exchange workflow, and it's said to gain complete control over whatever passes through an infected mail server. ESET says it can intercept or redirect email, and it can alter the content of both inbound and outbound messages. It can even create and send new emails. There's really no software patch for this, Light Neuron lives off the land, abusing sound, legitimate systems. Its control mechanism is also unusual. Once installed, Light Neuron's masters don't connect with it directly. Instead, they send commands steganographically, hidden in emails through the infected servers, where Light Neuron reads and executes them. Verizon's always interesting data breach investigations report is out. This 2019 edition offers some interesting takeaways. The C-suite is far more likely now than in years past to be socially engineered over social media, and an uncomfortably large number of such attempts are proving successful. Criminals are following companies into the cloud and are devoting a lot of effort to stealing cloud service credentials, and the hoods are also looking hard for any configuration mistakes. Ransomware is still going strong, now accounting for almost a quarter of malware incidents. Paycard web application compromises are fast catching up with compromises of physical payment terminals. There's some good news here. Part of the change is accounted for chip and pin systems' wider adoption and the success those systems are having in slowing down card-present fraud. 
And there's more good news. Targeting of human resources departments seems to be on the decline, and general users are showing a lot less readiness to click links in phishing emails. They're most gullible for some reason while using mobile devices. The fish now seem to be more mobile than otherwise. And crypto jacking? Still around, but a lot less prevalent. We'll have an interview with one of the authors of Verizon's Data Breach Investigations Report on this coming Friday's CyberWire podcast. There's no shortage of abbreviations and acronyms in the security space, and it's no wonder some of us find ourselves wandering around in the wilderness chanting, Sims and socks and sores, oh my. Well, don't surrender, Dorothy, because we've got many har from Simplify on the line to help make sense of some of the lingo. I think we're in the spot where I think we're slowly recognizing, maybe in a few years now, that uh, our focal point has now become the ability to actually respond to all these alerts. So if you think about the last 15 years, 10 years, 5 years, we spend a lot of effort on a lot of different tools. We have a lot of different data sets that we now in place, vulnerability management, threat intelligence, that's a huge list of those. That's a huge list of tools that you're using from cloud to endpoint to network. There's a list of them that goes on and on. And we built all of these but we haven't thought through about what are the analysts actually looking at all this data supposed to do with it. And I think this is where the socks are these days, trying to figure out, and I think you've seen all the different security operation centers pretty much across the country looking at how can they now bring it all together, be better, mm-hmm. make sure they look at everything. Well, let's run through some terms together because uh, things that are tossed around when it comes to socks are, are SIMs and SORs. Can you describe to us what those are and what the difference is? Definitely. SIM, Security Information Event Management, is actually a tool set built to be able to centralize all the log sources or log information that the organization has. For example, 15 years ago, you could have an antivirus, like a Symantec or a Northern antivirus. You could have a firewall, like a checkpoint firewall. There will be two interfaces. So at that point, you also have to only have two log sources, two alert sources you can look at. Now there's 50 different tools. And the log sources, the level of information you have is just tremendous. There's no way to now leave all these different log sources and information in separate tools. There's now a need to centralize all these logs to a central repository. And that's what the SIM is here to do, which is, by the way, a very big undertaking. A lot of different log sources, a lot of different, different formats. How do they come together? And I think uh, uh, up until maybe a few years ago, they were also being used as an interface on the SOC. Once we have all these logs together, and I'm an operating analyst sitting in the operations center of the organization, since all the logs are there and since I can define correlations to actually help me highlight the alerts I want to look at, that becomes the interface the analysts are working with. And it worked for a time until the attackers, until the level of attacks, the level of tools became a bit too much. And now they came in need for a tool set that is really focused on the operations side, right, the store itself, which is basically security orchestration, automation, and response, right? That's kind of the, uh, the acronym here. So once we have come to this point where there needs to be a focus on more of the operational side, how do we take all this information, all the different tool sets we have, how do we operationalize it to a way where now we can actually respond and be effective in our stock? That's where the SOAR comes in, right? It comes to help you understand what is important, help you automate the things that you might not want to look at because there might be noise or false positive, which is a big problem these days. It also helps you create a process around how you should respond or best practices around how you should respond to different alerts and actually help you manage the operational side of security and not just the law collection or correlation of those. And is there a life cycle that most organizations go through? Do they start with one and, and grow into another, or, or do they dial it in depending on what their individual needs are? So as people, as organizations look to adopt a sort of day, uh, especially major organizations or large enterprises, they are in the place where they typically already have a SIM in place because, A, they needed something before SOAR. There was still SOC 
So it's typically in place. Uh, another option is a lot of the times organizations put in a SIM for compliance purposes. They must maintain logs of X time or seven years for a specific uh, audit they're reviewing. So it's a, lo- a SIM, a lot of time is mandatory for the business just to be able to maintain compliance. The second option we're seeing today, if I'm an organization building a SOC right now, then I might be looking at both at the same time, right? If I want to build a SOC end-to-end, I might take my SIM, I might add a SOAR and have the whole thing together as I, as I initially look at building a SOC. But there's also a lot to be done. And once all of the information is collected, what should the analyst do with it? What decision should he make? What should he base his decision on? And that's where a SOAR can help you, A, bring all this together in a very easy-to-use way, but also help guide your decision-making in a process that spans both man and machine. That's many Har from Simplify. Safeguard Cyber says the bad actors never left the European elections' fields of influence. They've been tracking bots, trolls, and hybrids, all of which have been active against the electorates of Germany, Italy, France, Spain, Poland, and the United Kingdom. A lot of the bots make pests of themselves by following the social media accounts of prominent European Union figures. A full 13% of Julian King's followers, for example, are bogus bad actors. Sir Julian is the European Commissioner for the Security Union. In the U.S., outlines of Cyber Command's preparations to help secure the 2020 elections grow clearer. The command seems likely to take a more active approach, hunting for cyber operators and influence campaigns in foreign networks, the Washington Post reports. Bot herders and troll masters can, at the very least, expect some stern talking-tos by direct message. Another large cryptocurrency exchange has been looted. Binance, the world's leading altcoin trading system by volume, lost some $41 million to hackers, Reuters reports. Binance, founded in China but now operating out of Japan and Taiwan, has suspended trading until it gets a handle on security. Closer to home, Baltimore's city government was hit yesterday by ransomware. It's not been a good couple of weeks around Charm City. The new mayor... And he's new because the old mayor resigned over some creative marketing of a children's book she'd written. The new mayor, his honor Jack Young, took wearily to Twitter to let all of us here in the land of pleasant living know that emergency services were unaffected and that the city would work to recover as quickly as possible. The precise strain of ransomware involved seems to be so far unknown, or at least undisclosed. In fairness to Baltimore, we must note that the city was hit in early 2018, about the same time Atlanta got clobbered, and Baltimore actually came out pretty well. It didn't take a financial bath, it switched quickly to manual backups, and it restored systems to essentially full capacity within 17 hours. We'll see how recovery proceeds this time. Maybe there's even a children's book in it. Hacker Holly? Ransomware Randy? Maybe not. Hey, we got a joke for y'all. You say that someone who speaks several languages is polylingual, and you call someone who speaks two languages bilingual, right? Well, what do you call someone who speaks one language? You call them American. That kills us every time we hear it, and hey, we're Americans around here, so happy self-deprecation runs through our veins. Anywho, why are we sharing this particular vitz, this bon mot with you today? We're prompted to do so by an article in Foreign Policy, which points out that for all the woofing about multiculturalism around Silicon Valley, Greater Mountain View tends to be about as American as, say, Bug Tussle, Oklahoma, or Rabbit Hash, Kentucky. And this, they argue with some reason, might well induce people to cool their optimistic jets about how easy it will be to realize the ardor for content moderation 
forming along the San Francisco-Washington axis. We're fortunate at the CyberWire to have a linguistics desk that pips us to the nuances to be found in various foreign tongues. Like, for example, they've schooled us at great length about bad words in other lingos. Did you know, for example, that one swears quite differently in French depending upon whether one is doué or chiquitoumi? We keep telling the desk that we're a family show and don't need to know this kind of thing. But they keep letting us know that, for example, in some Slavic languages, the names of certain diseases have the perlocutionary force of a good old American F-bomb. But not in Russian. A Muscovite F-bomb's just like a New Yorker. Except, strictly speaking, as the desk pedantically tells us, in Moscow it's really more of a yeah-bomb. Go figure. Anyway, kids, study STEM, but don't blow off the languages either. And don't forget, for all you algorithms listening out there, content moderation ain't beanbag. Interpret that one, you decision procedure, you. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's great to have you back. Uh, interesting article came by from The Verge, and this is about uh, folks using emojis in their communications and people in courts of law having to deal with that. What do we need to know here? So I got a, a big kick out of reading about this case. The the case referenced comes from California and a person under investigation of soliciting or uh, basically being a pimp, uh, hiring prostitutes, and the subject of a prostitution uh, sting had texted somebody using a crown emoji, high heels, and a dollar sign. And that accompanied the message, teamwork, make the dream work. Prosecutors claimed that the message implied a working relationship between a potential prostitute and this individual. Um, the individual's defense was that he was simply trying to strike up a romantic relationship. But the fact that these emojis were used in the prosecution, I think, is both extraordinary and also becoming more common. You know, in terms of the reliability of emoji use when we're talking about a criminal case, it seems rather unreliable to me. I don't know about you, but in my casual conversations, I will frequently use the wrong emoji or I'll use an emoji... <laughs> 
that might indicate something to me, but indicate, you know, something else to a third party observer or even the person I'm speaking to. Right. Um, uh, they use an example in this article, one of the smiley faces that's used in the iOS emoji catalog looks a little bit different and less smiley when it makes its way into an Android user's device. Mm-hmm. And that could mean different things to the person who sent the emoji than to the person receiving them. When you think about the real world analog to this, you can probably glean some evidence from people's facial expressions or emotional reactions. Certainly an excited utterance, uh, which you know somebody's instant reaction to an event that they see is admissible in court. But emojis are vague enough and subject to such conflicting interpretations that I don't see how they could consistently be used as reliable evidence. I can't help wondering if we're going to end up with uh, you know experts in emoji interpretation as uh, you know hired to, to for by by the prosecution or the defense. Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I have a future profession here as someone quite familiar <laughs> with with using emojis. But, you know, I'm trying to think of the most extreme examples possible, not to make something too R-rated for this podcast. But if I was legitimately interested in cooking eggplant <laughs> right, right. and I, I sent that emoji and I had no idea that it was used in very different connotations right. and that ended up being used in evidence for my criminal prosecution, I mean, that would be fundamentally unfair to me and also it would be impossible to deduce my intention of sending that particular image it would be up to a jury to decide whether uh you know a jury as the finder of fact to decide whether i meant that as the literal vegetable or uh, as the symbol that it's become in the emoji world yeah so because of that unreliability and because you know emojis being different things to different people I just don't see how it can be a reliable source of evidence. The other thing is that uh, people make mistakes in which emojis they use all the time. Some emojis that might implicate somebody in criminal activity might be next to something that's completely uh, innocent and innocuous, and somebody could have pressed it by accident. You'd hate to see somebody being sent to prison uh, because they pressed the wrong button on on their mobile device. You know, I just don't see how emojis could ever be reliable evidence. You started to see emoticons show up in cases starting in the early 2000s. Those to me, this may be a distinction without a difference, but it takes somewhat of a uh, purposeful action to draft an emoticon. You know, although most of the ones I use, I copy and paste from the Internet like that, that shrugging emoticon. (laughs) But making a, you know, a smiley face is a conscious action on the part of um, the person sending it. Whereas selecting an emoji that may be subject to different interpretations isn't um, something that necessarily is conscious or, or purposeful. So I think there really is possibly a distinction between the two. How interesting for the uh, judges and juries who have to contend with this stuff. And when your coworkers send around that text that asks, what's everybody in the mood for for lunch? No matter how much you want to have eggplant, don't send it out. Don't put the eggplant. <laughs> yeah, don't use the eggplant emoji. <laughs> right, right. All right. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Have a good one. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. 
This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. Cyber.